0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Good buildings should last for a long time. But when a building reaches its use-by date, they can seem out of place next to contemporary buildings, they can be less useful than they once were, or they might not be useful at all. Some of these buildings also have a strong connection to the cultural fabric of a community, but the use they were built for may no longer exist. Architects who work on these buildings have to establish how the building fabric can be preserved while extending their usefulness further into the future. While it might seem like some of the most clinical, prescriptive or old-fashioned architecture work, working on heritage and conservation projects can connect with some of the strongest collective emotions of a community. I'm Daniel Moore and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Susan Phillips, Eric Martin and Sophie Bentz about working on heritage projects and the place of conservation in the community. Our first guest, Susan Phillips, is a director of Phillips Pilkington, based in Adelaide, who have a diverse portfolio of projects, including residential, commercial, zoological enclosures, as well as heritage and conservation projects. Susan studied closely with David Saunders during the conservation effort of the industrial heritage in the town of Goula. Susan shares her process for working on heritage-listed buildings and some of the difficult challenges surrounding buildings that have aged past their original intended use. All right, Susan. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. It's really wonderful to have you. How are you going?
1: Oh, very well.
0: Fantastic. So, I mean, you've been working for more than 30 years, almost 40 years now, and you're one of the co-founders and co-directors of Phillips Pilkington. What's the approach that Phillips Pilkington takes with cultural buildings and buildings with heritage significance?
1: Well I think it's been something that's been well underpinned our practice. We have a really strong desire in all our architecture whether it's working with historic buildings or developing contemporary buildings to really create or try and reinforce a sense of identity and a sense of place. So When we're working with heritage buildings, it's trying to understand as much as possible as we can about the buildings, their history, their evolution, what was there originally, how it's changed with changing circumstances over time, and then working with that knowledge to whatever interventions that we're looking to do, because those buildings were obviously designed before um, things like electricity communication systems that we have today, how you integrate them, but also often things like amenities, things like access, most of those buildings had stairs that led up to them, so they're not particularly accessible and they're therefore not friendly to the community as a whole. And they tend to not have the kind of facilities that we come to expect today. So when we're working with those buildings, we try to be very clear about the delineation between what's new and old so we're not looking to replicate the stylistic architecture that they were designed with but to have our new work being in a way subservient to it so it's not dominating and overtaking but relating to scale and a sense of materiality if that's possible and just clearly defining what is new and old so it's, it's a kind of amalgam, I guess, of strategies so that we keep what is there and historic as an easily recognisable core of the building and then whatever we need to do to make it work for a, a contemporary community or audience, then mm. that's clearly articulated.
0: Right. So how do you think the actual built form affects the cultural institutions that you've been working on. How, how do you think that actually affects them?
1: Well, I, I think many of these buildings were the, the centre of communities and the communities were had a lot of pride in where they were living. So they're often very elaborate buildings, they would have involved a huge amount of labour to put them together so that that they were a kind of focal point and a a sense of a community um, expressing who it was and its vision for the future because, you know, sometimes they were in relatively small communities with an optimism about a growing economy and in a way I think they're a sort of... An Australian equivalent to say the great cathedrals that were built throughout Europe. I mean, obviously, on a much more modest scale and in more modern times, but they were a real focus for the community. And in terms of use, Things like the institute buildings, very similar, I think, to the tradition of mechanics institutes in Victoria. They were places of learning. A lot of ad- adult education happened there. They were the lending library, so that disseminated knowledge and education throughout the community. They were also the centre of community life in terms of things like dances where the community would come together often once a week to interact and socialise in a pre-television and modern media way and and there are often theatres for travelling, theatre groups, musicians and so mm. on so they were a centre of cultural life but quite a few of them then morphed into the cinemas for those communities. So they had a dual role as being a cinema um, as well as a theatre. And some of them have retained their libraries. So at the moment, we're doing a small project at Two Wells, just north of Adelaide, and the Institute Hall has become the library. And while I'm focusing on institutes, it's also town halls as well. So um, one of the projects we worked on in Adelaide was converting the old St Peter's Town Hall into a uh, contemporary library, um, community radio station, health centre and a series of community meeting rooms. So they had similar functions, but they started from slightly different groups of people. And the other thing I'm um, rabbiting on too much here they are often built as memorials to return soldiers or to commemorate those who had lost their lives uh, in overseas warfare so there, there's a lot of kind of embedded memory in these buildings and it, in a way trying to articulate that or make it more visible it's it's sort of the narratives of history that these buildings embody and I believe it's important that that is not lost.
0: And uh, you did mention that these buildings are really good identifiers of and uh, icons of our history from 1770 to today. Is your practice also involved in Indigenous heritage uh, in the built community?
1: It is as much as we can be and, you know, I, I hope there's a future where we have many more architects and designers um, completing architecture degrees. I know there are a number who are doing great work, but we've been lucky enough to be involved in a number of projects. The most recent is student housing for tertiary students, so mostly students who are coming from remote communities like the APY lands in the far north west of our state.
0: Right, so these are Indigenous communities, are they?
1: Yeah, yeah, Indigenous communities. So for Indigenous students, um, one of the things in terms of them continuing with and completing their education that was identified was a lack of appropriate housing. So it's a little bit like a a traditional university college but um, for Indigenous students where they have They're living in a supported accommodation, just like the traditional university college. So that's a recently completed project. We're working on a project in Western Victoria, which is just coming to completion. It's a keeping place for the Gunja Mara people, which has just been a fantastic job to work on. Quite a few years ago, we developed a cultural centre for the Ghana people, who are the traditional owners, custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and they have a strong, proud and continuing history. So that was a project working with the Ghana community to give them a place within central Adelaide to be able to celebrate their culture. And we have been involved in a little bit of housing, but it's an area, I think, in terms of that sense of place and understanding of you know, what it is to be an Australian. It's a wonderful privilege to have the opportunity to work with Indigenous communities and hopefully, hopefully assist in creating facilities that support their ongoing opportunities to reclaim, redevelop and continue their culture into the future.
0: And as you were mentioning before, you know, you've worked on these um, beautiful post-colonial buildings uh, that's uh, through their materiality um, in, in their built form actually represent the culture have you been able to put that knowledge now into the buildings that that represent indigenous uh, people who use those buildings
1: well in term, I mean each project is different but in the case of the building in western Victoria that we've been working on we've we've worked with traditional um, structures that the Gunjamara people, lived in and essentially the villages they created. So the work of Paul Mehmet um, from the University of Queensland has been really, really helpful from that perspective because he's done a marvellous job in documenting the structures and, I guess, elements of building that on the whole, I think there's a perception that There were no permanent structures but there were and there's, you know, there's a whole lot of work that's happening around that at the moment but Paul Mehmet's done an extraordinary job working with communities to both document and where there there is the evidence is more scant to hypothesise on um, the kind of structures that were used for shelter and various activities.
0: Yeah, well, the more that we learn about uh, the the permanent structures that Indigenous uh, people were building, the, the more that we can see how it can be included in in the work being done around Australia. So it's built for place. Um, what what was the specific um, Indigenous structures that were unique to to this particular project you were working on?
1: Well, that country is volcanic lava, so which was a series of um, waterways and it's just had the the whole area has um, recently achieved World Heritage Listing because of its role in aquaculture. So it's the earliest known, well, agriculture, agricultural activity and I'm no expert on this, Daniel, so uh, in terms of what I would say the Gunjamara community Are doing a fantastic job, and there's lots of information available online about what they've been doing in terms of restoring and interpreting that fantastic aquacultural history. But there are a series of circular buildings that, or dwellings, that are illustrated in Paul's book. Um, that form the basis of a key element of the design, which is the keeping place. And it's also, as well as being a keeping place for various cultural artefacts that have been dispersed all over the place and the opportunity to repatriate them back to country has been a focus of that project, but also providing accommodation for office workers and meetings and, um, I guess, associated uses.
0: So upgrading its use so that it meets the actual contemporary needs of the of the land and the, and the people who live and work there now, mm.
1: providing facilities on country for that community to. Um, continue to operate and do all the things they do. And I should say that this project, my partner, Michael Pilkington, has been the project architect for, so I'm I'm on the periphery. Um, He's a much better person to talk to in terms of details about that.
0: All right. So, well, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. It was wonderful to hear about all the the whole variety of projects that that you've been working on over the years in terms of culture and and heritage. So, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing more of the work that you and, and your firm are doing in the future. So, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Daniel. It's been lovely talking to you.
0: While we're talking about iconic buildings, our next guest is an actual icon in the heritage field. Eric Martin has been practising architecture with a focus on conservation and heritage for over 40 years. With his practice based in Canberra, he has been involved in Australia's most significant buildings, including Australian Parliament House, Old Parliament House, the National Film and Sound Archive, Ian Potter House and the Shine Dome to list only a few. Eric shares his opinions about working on high-profile conservation projects and how the practical needs of old buildings can be challenging with regards to retaining the original design intent of a building. All right, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going?
2: I'm very well today, thank you.
0: I'd love to ask you, I mean, you mentioned that you've, uh, that you've got qualifications in conservation and not purely heritage, because I think sometimes people see just the word heritage and say, you know, oh, God, why do we have to keep all this stuff? What do you think defines the heritage buildings that should be conserved?
2: Look, in every jurisdiction, whether it be a local council, a state or territory government, or a federal government, have a series of criteria. Uh, And those criteria set out why uh, buildings or places are considered important from a heritage perspective. And they can be from a historical point of view. They can be from an architectural design merit and recognition by the community. It can be a social significance um, and most of the churches are a good example of that. Or it could be from a technical point of view. In other words, it technically is a a stunning building that set a new trend in technology or used uh, current construction techniques in a very innovative way so there are various reasons why and it's interesting when looking at criteria because many buildings are basically fairly easy to determine whether they do meet the criteria or don't meet the criteria but the the gray area between there's always a big debate
0: (laughs) well yeah i I like that you mentioned there that a design alone is not one of the is is not the only thing that will make uh, a building qualify to be conserved. Uh, does uh, would you say that the uh, the majority of buildings are usually because of uh, its place in in history and the events that took place in a building, even though maybe the look of the building is not uh, might not stand out, or do you think it does lean towards the the buildings which are um, significant because of their link to uh, design styles throughout history?
2: I think it is a mixture of both. Obviously, the public buildings, like the ones we mentioned before, the Shine Dome, the National Film and Sound Archive and our old Parliament house are public buildings and therefore the public are far more aware of them. But if you talk about Harry Seidel as the the Edmund Barton building which is basically an office building and it's been an office building since it was designed in the 1960s it was a, a, a it's a stunning building it's just housed public servants for the whole of its life but it's the, it is recognized as a very important building not only of harry's work but also as a innovative uh, way of actually using uh, precast and post-tension concrete and the design is an outstanding quality as well so you do get buildings which are primarily there for their architectural design aesthetic but you do get others that have a very much stronger social context
0: right and and when it comes to uh, the work the work that you do um because you're not just doing you know you're not just writing a heritage report you will be actually doing architectural conservation services on these buildings um has there been an example of a building that's been um difficult to put uh an, an argument to 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 retain portions of the of the existing heritage or a portion of the building that you believe should be kept for heritage reasons,
2: the biggest challenge usually comes with uh, not a, not the conservation of the original fabric. It really is how you actually manage change, and particularly if you wanted to actually add to an existing building uh, which has iconic status and how you actually do that. And there are basically two types of approach, one that you actually play down the the design of the new extension or alteration and let it be subservient to the original building and treat it with similar basically shape, form and materials, or you might do a quite a modern addition to it and um, it can sit perfectly well in the context of the old building. And it's buildings like the um, new-, new South Wales State Gallery is one example where modern additions can happen to a building and still work perfectly well Um,
0: going through the process of um you know rediscovering the the original intent and process that that architects went through when they designed some of these amazing buildings you know like ian potter house um does it give you a greater appreciation of of what architects were doing um, when, when these buildings were originally designed and built?
2: Yeah, it does. And one thing that's really unfortunate with a lot of scenarios, um, is that the, the most critical thing when, if you can ever find it in respect to a design of a building and the national library is one, which, um, I have had some association with, but if you can find the original architect's final sketch plan report, which deals with the philosophy of the design and what the underlying principles were behind it, it really is quite enlightening in respect to information about a building. Frequently these reports get lost in the passage of time and people only see what the final outcome is, but don't understand how a design was arrived at and what the thinking behind that design was. And that adds another dimension to an understanding of a building, particularly as an architect um, of, why the design what the thoughts were and if you understand that you can actually better implement change adaptation and dealing with conservation issues right but unfortunately those sorts of reports are not always available
0: right and do you have an example of of one particular project where where you did get to find that document
2: uh look it was certainly enlightening to read the national library sketch brand reports from noel potter who was the uh, project architect for it and um It really was quite intriguing to see behind it. And that's an interesting building because it's based around the Parthenon as far as proportions. But but one subtle difference. The Parthenon has 17 columns down one side and eight across the front. The National Library has 16 down one side and eight across the front. But height, footprint, same as the Parthenon.
0: Right, and what, what was their intention with, with making this connection to, to such an iconic ancient building?
2: Uh, it was classical proportions and, and for a classical building dealing with a national collection of books and uh, publications. So it was considered it was a, an appropriate uh, design thinking in respect to something that was classical and needed to stand the test of time because it effectively is a, a literary archive.
0: Right. Okay. And so can you tell me about um, one of the projects that you've worked on where, I mean, because they've got so much inherent value um, historically, politically, um, uh, you know, and emotionally as well, is it, was there a particular project that you worked on that made it very difficult to add on to, um, you know, because it because it meant so much?
2: probably look we haven't done major extensions to to any buildings um, but we've certainly done um, minor extensions to some of the the difficult challenges um, even more recently is old Parliament house where earlier this year late January there was a huge hailstorm when came through canberra and destroyed most of the um, the roofs and some and many of the windows on on many buildings, but in particularly uh, with Old Parliament House, the skylights that were built in the 1927s, which have stood a hundred years effectively, got smashed. Oh
0: no! Okay. Oh gosh! So what do you, yeah? So what do you do there?
2: <laughs> then becomes the, the challenge of actually the glass that was there won't stand another hailstorm. So you then start looking at what the current codes and standards require. What the structural system was and behind that supported the wired glass and the skylights and then start looking at how much can you retain how much you've got to replace to design integrity so there usually are compromises but with some thought behind it you can actually end up with a a skylight which Resembles the original, but it may have a different type of glass in it. It's still clear glass, but it actually withstand will withstand the the pressures of a future hailstorm. Uh, but you're not changing the base structure, but you will change some of the finishes. So when you get into some of these things, and and we've just got another one with um, where the profiles of roofing have changed over the years, and you actually go back and match to what extent is a roof profile critical, to what extent it's not seen and therefore it's less important and, and whether the design integrity issues are um, maintained or the conservation values are maintained by changing a material or not. Those debates occur at a, a smaller level and a larger level with most uh, conservation projects and there's always a debate and discussion.
0: And what sort of which side would you <laughs> would you be on? Do you think uh, do you think it's the elements that need to be preserved, or sort of the overall um, uh, building that that, uh, or or am I simplifying it too much?
2: No, look, I I'm, I'm, I would I tend to err on this on the side of actually two things. One, it needs to survive, and therefore, if there's a certain level of compromise um it's more important to make sure that it does survive and the base material doesn't get damaged in the future events the other thing which i think is really important that the best way to look after a heritage building is to use it and if that means a level of compromise to make it usable well then i think the adaptive reuse and some change is is necessary and the one of the bigger challenges with a lot of these heritage buildings, and the National Film Sound Archives, is one of those, is how you make buildings which are designed under a different regulatory framework handle current requirements, particularly access for people with disabilities.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that must be extremely hard when um, when the code basically didn't exist um, when it, when these buildings might have been designed originally, um, and where because they're now a pub, or because they are a public building. They would, they, the uh, new custodians want to make sure that that all of the public can access them. Um, that must be an ongoing debate as well.
2: It is an ongoing debate. Um, fortunately, is an area that I've specialised in for a few decades as well. And usually, you can find solutions. But there's no doubt there are certain buildings that t- to actually put in place a fully accessible means of getting to um, a point. Uh, destroys the heritage value and the codes and standards and the um, Disability Discrimination Act recognises that there are certain circumstances. And if you, for one example, um, an historic lighthouse, um, not always easy to get to the top. Right. (laughs) And to actually contemplate putting a lift or some other mechanism to get to the top for a person with a disability, uh, you probably destroy the whole value of the um, original fabric. So there are certain examples where... Some compromises or some situations that full access is not possible.
0: And I mean, you, you mentioned now a couple of times, you know, that maintaining the use of of something of a heritage building, um, you know, is is also sort of integral to to its value. I mean, in Melbourne and Sydney, we definitely see, uh, or most cities around Australia, we see uh, heritage buildings where they might destroy the the, the whole back of a. Of a property and just the facade is kept. <laughs> um, how do you feel about uh, these sorts of processes? And um, uh, yeah, you think that's a that's a good way for us to to maintain uh, the heritage value of these of these types of
2: buildings? It's certainly a, something that it has been used in the past. It tends to be less preferred today because most times heritage uh, or significance is more than just the facade of a building. But there's no doubt that um, streetscapes and a scale within a street is actually sometimes very important in in, in cities and also in cons- conservation areas or residential areas. Uh, but usually um, it can be a part of the original building, not necessarily the whole of the original building. And there's certainly examples in both Sydney and Melbourne where um, the front part of a building has been retained and conserved and used as a forecourt or, or an entry or four-year space into a multi-story um, office building behind it. And I think they can work because when you actually at a street level, you still see the scale of the original one and the, the newer, taller building is set back enough that it um, isn't so obvious when you're at ground level anyway. So I think it can work and it's got to work for just the accommodation of people within our cities that uh, as cities grow and expand and the need for more office space is there
0: awesome eric well thank you so much for being part of the hearing architecture podcast it's been great to hear just a snippet a small snippet of you know all of the years of experience that, that, that you've had um so thank you so much for sharing with us and yeah hopefully we can talk to you again um at a later date to hear some more of uh, yeah more about the projects that you're involved with so thank you so much
2: um, thank you, Daniel. Look, it's, it, it is it is obviously an interest and a passion, and uh, each job is different. And uh, so hopefully it's of some benefit to you, but it's certainly a, a fascinating interest and career, and I hope it's been of some benefit.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Australia has heritage buildings dotted right across the landscape, and Tasmania has some of the oldest and best preserved places and precincts. Sophie Bentz from Bents Mulcahy Architects talks to us about working on heritage houses and how to balance the parts that need to be retained and respected and how new extensions can complement the original built fabric. All right, Sophie, well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's wonderful to have you on.
3: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: No worries. So we're going to be talking about... Uh, one of your projects in Hobart, can you tell us, first of all, if you wanted to set the stage for what it's like working in Hobart, because Hobart does have a very rich uh, colonial heritage as well as Indigenous heritage, but in terms of, uh, I guess, architecture, it's got a really strong um, heritage uh, culture do you want to tell us a little bit about designing in, in Hobart with uh, with heritage overlays and, her- and the heritage culture that, culture that it has there
3: sure well I think um, I think we're very fortunate to be to living and working to be living and working in Hobart it's a very beautiful city um, both for its landscape and topography and the way it's sort of set between you know the river and, and the mountain but also because of its um, its architectural heritage as well and the built environment. Um, it's, you know, it's much more of a colonial town than, say, Launceston, but it's and, and it's got many sort of um, sandstone and predominantly sort of red brick buildings, um, which, you know, are very simple, mostly, um, but very beautiful. And so we often, um, our office is in North Hobart and we look out the windows um, up to West Hobart and we sort of, See the city as kind of a red city um which is quite quite beautiful with all the um red brick um houses so so and, and i suppose um for designers um all of that um all of those heritage buildings present the opportunity to um, you know for alterations and additions that um that work with both heritage and the contemporary which is um you know, really nice to be able to do both.
0: Oh, that's 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 lovely. So, to most of the projects that that you will take on in Hobart, do they have a heritage element to them or heritage control?
3: Um, a lot of them do. I mean, I must say that certainly when um, Seamus, my Mulke, my business partner, and I started our practice uh, about five years ago, we, we didn't have any heritage experience. A lot of the work that we had been working on to date was for you know, for government projects and sort of larger scale things like schools and, and projects like that. And so, so when we started our practice, we were very much we didn't have any work to start with. And so we, um, which is potentially not you know a great move for starting a practice, but but we reached out to other architects and mentors that that were you know just really supportive and helpful. And through that, we sort of started working in this field of um, very minor. Um, alterations and additions to existing houses and so um, you know there's always someone who wants kind of like you know just to redo their kitchen or to um, replan the the back end of their heritage home you know the bit that has the bathroom and the kitchen and the laundry in yeah (laughs) so we we got through those mentors and referrals from architects we that we knew we we just sort of picked up a few little tiny projects like that that were very small in scale but but that exposed us to, to heritage and working in that realm and not only from a sort of strategic and understanding how to, to make good heritage architecture but also, you know, from a technical point of view, how do you, you know, how do you deal with heritage fabric from a building point of view? So that was, that was how we kind of started. And I think, so yes, I think in answer to your question, there is an opportunity to be exposed to, to heritage if you're working in Hobart um, because so many of the buildings are either heritage listed or, um, or uh, you know, fall within a local council heritage precinct, uh, which is quite common. Yeah,
0: right. So, you've uh, got a, a, one of these heritage projects in your office at the moment called the Mount Stewart Greenhouse. Do you want to tell us uh, how you got this project and and what you've what you started to find as you've as you've started to tackle this this, uh, this house?
3: Well, um, it is actually completed now, it, it, but it was a project, I suppose, that we started very early on in our practice but, but went for a li- really long period. Like we worked on it I think for three, three and a half years. And so, yeah, I mean it's, it was an absolutely fantastic project to work on. We had clients that um, came to us, you know, with a brief for this existing building, which is a, a beautiful federation brick house up in Mount Stewart on the hill overlooking the city. Um, And it's quite a prominent house on the street. It's, you know, it's got a a big scale and it's very close to the street. And so a big part of its heritage significance was to do with how its contribution to the streetscape. But this young family had moved in and while they loved the house, you know, they needed to kind of upgrade it to help support their sort of growing family, teenage kids and bustling life that they kind of led.
0: Right. So it was just a little bit small for, for the family that was moving into the house?
3: Well, you know, it's quite a large house to be honest but, but what, what had happened was during the 80s there was this little addition to the sort of southern corner of it which is not that visible from the street and that was for the kitchen and dining room and it was a little glazed atrium which was, you know, it was very sweet but in proportion to the rest of the house quite small and while the clients loved the fact that they could be sitting in their dining room looking up at the sky and out to the trees, it was far too hot in summer. And it leaked like a sieve when it rained, so, <laughs> so it was, and, and it was, you know, just too small for them and their their three kids and their extended family that come from Victoria to visit and stay with them, and and so yeah, it was it was really that part of the house which was actually not the the, the heritage part of the house which they wanted to completely redo, and and you know, which meant demolishing that and then and starting again.
0: Right. So when you've got this this beautiful older heritage portion of a house and a newer addition that you're thinking about getting rid of, uh, is it just a, a process of saying, right, let's not touch the oldest part of the house at all and get rid of the addition? Or like where, where do you stop and start with with a project like that?
3: Yeah, well, I mean kind of. I mean in, in really in this instance I suppose that, that was made easier by the fact that that was the area that the, the client really wanted to develop the fact that it was of you know of no heritage value but I suppose strategically you probably just need to kind of have an understanding of why the house is significant and what you know what elements in the building you know are critical to preserve and retain and what of those can you know potentially um, be altered or demolished um, to make way for new works and that that's not always clear cut, and it's not always sort of straightforward. <laughs> but um, yeah, and and so in this instance, it was probably made easier by the fact that that part of the house was already um, developed in the 80s. But it did it did still um, require um, some consideration because there was some demolition of existing fabric that we made, and and how that new extension, you know, sat next to and complemented the existing was I suppose that the main concern for. For council in terms of its heritage significance.
0: Okay, so so council were still um, really interested in in the house, I guess. So, what? How did you start to tackle the the design of of, of the house, and how did you sort of test test um, how, what direction you're going to take it in?
3: Well, I suppose two ways. We we always start schematic design and explore lots of options. With this project, it was quite similar. So but I suppose firstly we kind of probably made an assessment about what we thought of the existing qualities and character of the heritage fabric of the house and you know it's a very it's a very big house and it has, you know, quite a tall scale and even has a tower, you know, so so it had this kind of it had this kind of verticality and mass that we were interested in from the start. And of course it's built from red brick, so it had this sort of big, tall kind of red brick presence quite close to the street. And so right from the start, we knew we were dealing with those elements. It also had a very kind of lightweight and more delicate veranda that that ran around from the front entrance, which is on the side of the house, to the southern elevation which overlooked the city and that lightweight sort of veranda element. We sort of picked up that, you know, there's two things here. There's there's the mass of the house and something which is quite, has a bulk and scale and verticality and then we've got this low-lying veranda which is very delicate um, and is more about how you experience the view. From
0: from the house, right. So it sounds like it was quite a, quite a detailed process. It must have taken a, taken a long time to, to try to resolve what you were going to do with all of that to to satisfy heritage, but also to satisfy uh, you know what the, what the clients wanted in the in the project.
3: Yeah, certainly certainly the schematic design was quite a drawn out process. It was very enjoyable, but it was it was quite um, iterative, and we made. We sort of made the decision at the outset of the project that we would explore this idea that the new um, extension would be some kind of veranda, lightweight element that sprung off the existing veranda and popped up a bit higher to form a second level and and fitted all the client's brief in. But the client had quite... um, an odd brief in a way because it was for a dining room and kitchen on the lower level with you know living areas and something very open to the landscape and connected so their kids could run in and out of the house or you know outside but on the upper level what they wanted to do was to have a very private robe and ensuite for themselves that had a physical sort of connection like a little bridge if you like back to the the master bedroom which is on the upper level of the main house and so that was kind of this odd little component of the project which I think at the outset we probably didn't realize, you know, it would be so tricky to resolve and and our first design ideas were about this this veranda roof that would actually sort of slope up with a series of kind of hips and that would conceal that robe and and that ensuite in in the roof form and that would be very sort of enclosed within the roof structure but below you'd have this open kitchen and living area that you know that connected out to the landscape but we just, um, it was just, to be honest, you know, pretty tricky to fit all of that in that sort of hipped roof form. The other, the other issue that we had was that the element that council were really interested in for the project in regards to its heritage significance was this notion of the new um, extension was to be subservient in, in bulk and scale um, to the existing house. And, so, and, quite, and quite literally that came down to the fact that the, the house should not be higher than the existing roof eaves. And so that set a datum that we couldn't go above. And so we were trying to fit two floor levels in um, with a set datum, um, which sort of, yeah, was, was quite tricky to resolve.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting that the client came to you with, I guess, quite a, what they probably also thought was a very simple brief. But then when you start to tackle the the heritage elements, that it the the complexity just starts piling up and piling up. Um, how did the how did the client go with, or how how did they feel about going through that process with you? As you kept saying, well, okay, you might just want these extra rooms, but we've got to allow for all of these considerations on a heritage level. How did, how did they feel about that process?
3: Um, look, I think they were they were obviously um, tenacious in pursuing it. They also, I think, um, they responded well to the process that Seamus and I sort of developed, which was to make models. And, you know, we would turn up to their house late on a Friday afternoon with a whole bunch of models and we would talk through them and, and the opportunities of each one and, the, you know, the things that were working and not working. Um, and, and they... Sort of engaged in that process and enjoyed it, and and were very good at being clear about what they needed and and sort of responding with feedback and then thinking about you know opportunities that arose and so forth. But it sort of it, it did come to a point where we sort of felt like you know what we were doing wasn't wasn't giving them what they needed, and also the form was becoming very clunky and just wasn't wasn't really that appealing and just didn't seem to be working. and And so there was a point um, in that process where. You know, I think it was Seamus who ended up just making a model which was actually just very rectilinear um, and which opened up a whole series of opportunities that that we realised we could actually get both those practical needs in for the client but actually give them also, you know, other qualitative aspects like, for example, you know, more expansive views to the garden and to the city and with keeping under this datum that had been sort of determined through our heritage consultation with, with Hobart City Council.
0: And so, on on this particular project, did you get to work with some local craftspeople or um, people who knew some of the skills that were that were used on the original house to to I guess bring it back to bring some of those details back to life?
3: Um, Well, we certainly worked with you know a builder who was very considerate to the existing building and so forth, and they you know they had all sorts of people involved, but we did um, into you know um, stonemasons and so forth but the project did have a lot of quite detailed aspects to it particularly with the interior and so there was a product called Tadelakt that used which is like a hard plaster for bathrooms and it's it's not typically used in Australia but you know there was only one person who was able to do that in Tasmania and and that was a that was a you know that's a finely honed skill that not everyone can do so certainly he was involved in in some of the internal spaces using that that hard plaster technique um and you know and and just there for um probably thousands of hours really the client the client told us that you know he was arriving in the middle of the night and starting work and you know just working consistently for 12 hours you know polishing this plaster finish so that was yeah and and other local craftspeople that we used with there there was a local steel worker who did you know made the steel doors and windows and features like that so you know they're very contemporary elements but they're crafted in a way which is you know, just really beautiful and, and robust.
0: And, and just coming back to the name of the project, the Mount Stewart Greenhouse, is there a portion of the, the building which is a greenhouse?
3: Um, well, it's, it's probably just more that um, the house is, is so open to the garden and, and so it's really just a name. But, um, you know, the, the, um, the clients came with this um, real need to see the sky from within and, and so and to be also connected to their garden because um, you know they're avid gardeners and they have a beautiful garden um, and there's a significant tree right right hard up against the extension um, which you sort of almost can open a window and touch and so the idea was that you were immersed in the garden and so that's where the, the term the greenhouse developed and also the, um, the client in the early days you know she was she was really great at articulating, not only the brief but the, the qualitative kind of desires for the project so the things about what kind of quality she wanted that space to be and how it would relate to the garden and so she was sending us through beautiful images of of greenhouses and you know that were predominantly glazed and, and that kind of thing and so yeah I think we and I think we found that that's thinking about it like a greenhouse or informed the thinking around you know all the steel frame work for the project and the articulation of all the glazing and it's and the way it's divided up and the fact that it relates to the iron work of the 1900s house. It sort of had that sort of fine steel work aesthetic and that and, and you might see in those early industrial-like greenhouses. So that was part of the design exploration of, of the exterior certainly.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's such—it's so, so beautiful. I'm, I won't be surprised if you guys now are asked to put a greenhouse in every every house that you work <laughs> on now. So, because in Tassie, everyone wants to be you know out of the wind and in, into the sun. So,
3: yeah, it is—it is quite quite funny. We have—we do find people now sort of come to us wanting glass glass extensions to their house. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It was really great to hear your perspective and hear your experience with working on a contemporary extension to a heritage building and all of the opportunities that uh, present themselves on this type of project. And it sounds like it was so, so rewarding working with so many craftsmen and a really engaged client. So thank you so much for that. And we hope to hear more from you in the future.
3: Thanks very much, Daniel. Cheers.
0: This has been Episode 9 of Season 2 of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Susan Phillips, Eric Martin and Sophie Bentz for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michael Moore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gordon, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie, and James goffwin This is a production of the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rudder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.